Welcome to Stop Telling and Start Listening with David Cook. If you're frustrated with the way we are speaking or not speaking to each other, if you find yourself easily at odds in your conversations with people, this may be just the show for you. Listen in as David and his guests will help you elevate your communication skills and navigate the tensions present in many conversations today. Now, here is David Cook. Hi, this is David Cook, and welcome to another episode of Stop Telling and Start Listening. Um, Happy Monday to everybody. Uh, I'm very excited today because I have um, the type of guest I've been trying to get on for a year, and it's taken me a year, but I've finally um, got somebody who's willing to join me and have the kind of conversations that I wanted to have about politics and all the stuff that's going on in that crazy world. So I'd like to say thank you to Adam Frisch for joining me today. Um, Adam comes to us from Colorado. He uh, ran, if if you remember, uh, in the news, followed things in the news. Adam ran for uh, Congress in the, I think it's the third congressional district in Colorado and famous for losing by only 546 votes, which is minuscule when you really think about it in the scheme of things. And um, the person who won was uh, Lauren Boebert, who uh, uh, infamously finds herself in the news very often. And uh, so he's running again. And I really appreciate, Adam, that you took the time to come out here and join me on this podcast. Thanks for being here. Good morning. Big fan, David. Great to be here with you and your listeners and viewers. Um, and it's a luxury for those of us that are running for office or in office to have more than a 30 second or 30 word answer <laughs> to almost anything. And you'll find out I'm not shy about having conversations of depth and of substance with people. So I appreciate yeah. you taking the time. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the fact that you're, you know, that, that you, you know, say that so clearly because, uh, you know, one of my, you know, I my really quick. You don't know this in my background, but my background was I have a I studied political science in in college. Ended up becoming a social studies teacher, and the reason I was in political science in the first place is I always saw myself working in Washington. And my son lives in Washington. I always tease him. I and and I because I told him this. I hope you're not getting stupider because you live inside the Beltway. Um, so I'm I'm very much a cynic of uh, the state of politics today. I'm not going to be shy about saying that either. I'm oh. a cynic about the the climate and the methodology and the things that we go. So when you say let's have a conversation, I'm like, dude, I'm ready. <laughs> you know, um, you might relate to this, but I think a lot of people are exhausted and a lot of people feel feel lonely just in the world. Um, but they certainly feel lonely when it comes to the political conversations because they just think that there's too many people yelling and screaming on the far sides of both both sides of the party, if you will. And, uh, you know, I've said for 20 years, if there was a get stuff done party, <laughs> I'd be in that party and just mm-hmm. more people playing between the two 40 yard lines. And that's kind of the journey we've had over the past couple of years. Yeah. Well, that's and that's really the way I, you know, why I named this podcast, you know, stop telling and start listening. Truthfully, I wanted to name the podcast Shut Up and Listen, but <laughs> I thought I thought that was a tad too abrasive even for me. And um, but the, it, it's for that very reason. It stopped telling and started listening. The idea being, let's let's not tell people why I'm right and you're wrong, or why I'm more informed or smarter than you and you're not as much. Because it just seems to me that there is no exchange of information when that happens. You know, we, we're we, we're lobbing grenades, verbal grenades, and um, stuff like that, and slogans, and none of that really does anything. And I, I love what you say. People feel um, isolated, alone, or cynics. We don't feel you know any, any connection to our leaders. So. Thank you for being one of those people willing to be 
um, honest, transparent. Oh, it's good. You know, I'm on. Speaking of listening and learning, I, I talk about being on a listening and lo- learning tour, and I am on one now. We've hit forty three or forty four thousand miles that I've driven across this district uh, since mm-hmm. last February when I decided to get into this race. We're about a year and a half in, and forty some thousand miles. I'm only home about four or five days a month, uh, and it's been like that minus a little bit of winter holiday last year, Thanksgiving, and a little bit of a summer break, but. Uh, just real quick, you know, our district is one. So we have, if for those of you can imagine Colorado, it's kind of a square rectangle, if you will. Uh, Colorado's third district is the the western, so the left hand part of the state, and then the southern part. So we have about we have all of almost all of the New Mexico state line that we share, and then we have the districts 100 percent of the the Utah Colorado state line, and about a third of the Wyoming uh, state line. So we're looking at uh, a district that's bigger than the state of Pennsylvania Mm. and 50% of the state of Colorado. And it takes me about 10 hours to drive from one point to the other. Uh, And that's with no traffic. We have a lot of mountains, but no traffic. Mm -hmm. And um, it's been a 43,000 mile uh, listening and learning tour and confirming. I kind of went in there having a little bit of understanding of what I thought people were focused on and the vast majority of it's been listening and confirming what the concerns are to a lot of people in western and southern Colorado. What are some of their biggest concerns? What do you what do you hear that just seems to be the common threads? You know, so when I looked at this race a couple of years ago, you know, and I've I was on my city council in Aspen, Colorado. You know, to me that's public elected public service, as I call it. My wife just finished her four-year term of being on our local school board, again, local community service, that elected community service, that's moms and dads and parents standing up and trying to do the right thing for their community locally. This is a different conversation. It was never a plan to run for U.S. Congress or anything above uh, the local city council uh, kind of chipping in, if you will. But a couple of years ago, um, the current representative made some comments, and I tell people, I don't really remember what they were. They were... Um, probably derogatory, minimally derogatory, if not a lot worse. And I just thought, you know, like, again, if there was my own political journey is if there was a get stuff done party, I'd be in that party. And I've said that for 20 years, I re-registered as a Democrat after um, not doing so when I was about 21, 22, after showing up in New York. And I just thought that a lot of people are sick and tired of the circus and they want someone to focus on the district, not themselves. And those are the two themes I've been talking about before we get into the issues of water and rural healthcare, which I'm happy to talk about. But I guess I call them more like themes mm-hmm. and, and, you know, for those non-political people, which is most of us, which is, hey, listen, we just want someone to take the job seriously, be a good listener, go to D.C. and be a true representative and try to figure out um, how to represent the men and the women and the businesses and the communities. We have 27 counties, so it's a really big district. So outside of those themes, um, you know, water is really, really big. We have a water shortage, a good part of the western part of the United States, but ex- especially western Colorado and southern Colorado uh, run, have had a perennial um, water, water shortage for over 20 years now and going back up to 40. And so the water conversation is big. We have a lot of ag, we have a lot of ranching, we have a lot of farming, we have a lot of recreation in some of our ski towns. 
and whitewater rafting. And then there's a the whole conservation. Everyone who lives out, everyone who lives in Colorado, you know, is pro public lands and making sure that we have clean, healthy water, clean, healthy air. Mm-hmm. And then um, there's a couple other things I spend some time talking about just rural economic development. I have a pretty strong business background, both 12 years in New York City, uh, involved in the fin- global financial markets as well as a, as a small business owner, residential home design in Pickens County where I live. And I've had some great successes and I've had some big stumbles along the way, like a lot of mm-hmm. entrepreneurs, if you will. Um, and my wife runs her family's manufacturing business. And we understand the trials and tribulations of running a business, let alone a manufacturing business in the United States and in, in a couple of different states. So uh, rural aspects of healthcare, Healthcare is obviously a really big conversation, a huge part of the economy. I try to be laser focused on those aspects of healthcare that really affect rural America. Everyone, as I say, has healthcare access issues because of how expensive uh, insurance and the hospital bills are and the doctor's bills are. Those of us that are living in Western and Southern Colorado, a good chunk of us are needing to drive an hour or so to see a doctor. And a lot of time there's only one physician uh, within that community. And then the next doctor could be two or three hours away. Yeah. And so we're really focused on healthcare, mental as well as physical health. Yeah. You know, I live, um, I, I'm, it's kind of interesting to listen to you talk. I, I just came back from New York city this last weekend. Um, I used to work and live out there. But I live in Arizona now. I live in the, in the outside of uh, Phoenix in Scottsdale, and water obviously is uh, is yeah. a big topic. What's interesting, you know, um, you know, the developers in Phoenix, you know, they want they want water, um, and the people that are going to suffer are the people like you talked about is is the ag side of it, um, you know, because um, it's a different voice, it's a different lobby, it's a different perspective. And I have a friend who's uh, uh, has a degree, you know, he's a PhD consultant in hydrology and stuff like that. And he basically says there is no water, and yeah, <laughs> it's going to become exp- it's going to become expensive and complicated. Yeah, no, it is. It's a long. We could have a a, a year long podcast uh, just on that. I, I do give credit. I do, I do know that some parts in the entire state, if not the Phoenix area, has made a comment that if new housing developers, and I've been a housing developer, uh, they need to obtain like 100 years or 200 years of water rights before they allow any more permits to be built. And uh, we all, you know, some of us make fun of Las Vegas over the time, but Las Vegas actually is using less water now than they did 20 years ago with like X amount of multiple of the population. Yeah. And, uh, And so we're trying to, my job, you know, I'm not arguing that people are not anti-water or pro-water it's who do you want sitting down at that table because at some point there could be eight of us from the colorado delegation we have eight congressional districts from 50 and there's 52 congressional districts in colorado in the house and at some point there might be a little bit of a conversation hopefully we all want to be unified but at some point there could be a little give and take between colorado and california mm-hmm. and i i make the case who do you want sitting down in that colorado seat uh the current representative or myself and that's where we kind of focus on less about yes or no and more about who wants to focus on the job. Mm-hmm. But Colorado and Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, and California are all looped into a 100-year 
water agreement with the Colorado River Compact. And it's a long conversation, but it's really important to urban as well as rural uh, areas across mm-hmm. the seven states. Yeah. And, you know, ironically, the reason I bring that up is that I grew up um, and actually today as we speak, I am in the, I'm in Detroit, Michigan and surrounded by the Great Lakes. And so the last conversation we would have here <laughs> is yeah. where's the water and how are we going to, well, we do worry about how we're going to manage it because everybody sees this gigantic uh, Dixie cup full of water yeah. and go, hey, maybe we just tap into that. It's like, no. <laughs> No, I, 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 you know, I, I was born in Montana on an Indian reservation. I lived there for five years, but uh, I grew up in Minneapolis, kind of kindergarten through 18. And my mom is from Duluth, Minnesota, which is on the on Lake Superior. So yeah. we're all very familiar in the Midwest that, A, there's usually more water than not. Uh, and, and two, there's a really a lot of big bodies of fresh water, which are very desirable from a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting that the one thing that you said is real important is that, um, you know, and I think that that's one of the, you know, this, I'd like to have you like kind of address that, you know, for me, when sitting in the cheap seats in the stands is the power and influence of special interests in politics and how uh, it feels like it prevents people from, ha- you know, that you talk about sitting at the table and having healthy conversation. Um yeah, how do you how do you navigate that? You know, in fact, I remember President Ford. Wait, you know, it tells you I'm dating myself. But when he was president, talking about the biggest challenge we have as a country going forward is the influence of special interests, and it was almost like he was predicting our present state of chaos. But how do you navigate all this? Because there's so much external influence in the process. Yeah, no, you hope everyone who shows up in office is focusing on what they believe personally, what they believe for their community, right? And and usually the people that do pretty well, their personal views are aligned with what the district's views are, the state's views are if you're if you're in the Senate. And so, you know, if I if there are um representatives um, you know, battling on behalf of their their interests, whether it's the energy sector or even tobacco, and I'm not a huge fan of it, but I, I can appreciate why people in um, Kentucky might be, you know, advocating for that. And I appreciate that. Where things get a little crazy is when you get congressional people in New York City that are the biggest advocates for the tobacco industry. And it's not because they're personally lover of tobacco, and it's not because their constituents are in that business. But when you connect the dots of where some of their funding comes from, Mm-hmm. you get the very simple aha moment. And listen, I, I hate the money in, in politics. And I say that either hypocritically or ironically, because we're actually setting some pretty big fundraising records um, with the amount of, of, we always need more money. <laughs> However, mm-hmm. we've done very, very well. And it's all from individuals. We, uh, you know, for, for the cycle of 2024, we're not taking any corporate PAC money. And so we're laser, you know, we have over 300,000 different donations uh, and our average donation is like 30 bucks or something. And so we're doing really, really well kind of on this grassroots conversation. But, you know, unfortunately, I'm not a big fan of the Citizens United Supreme Court ruling that happened uh, oh so long ago that really was another huge boost logarithmic in the amount of money that's running around politics. And it's frustrating. Um, And again, we all need it because it's part of the conversation. But, um, you know, my view, until we get a Supreme Court 
that's not going to make a 100% direct correlation between free speech and money. You know, free speech to me is standing up on a box uh, and saying what what you think. And Mm -hmm. people relate to what you're saying on the soapbox, if you will, you'll start to get your message out there. But in the meantime, um, you know, I was supported by Ed and Citizens United last time, and I hope to get their endorsement again. And it's just a matter of making sure that the money, even though there's a lot of it, it's as transparent as possible. Um, Because even though I appreciate at the local levels, you're starting to see some caps on on giving, um, you know, $250 or 500 bucks in these local elections. The problem is there's this dark money out there, the super PAC money, that it can be unlimited and it can be completely anonymous. And so one problem with having low spending uh, donation limits is that the same amount of money is going to be involved in a race. But my view is I want as much of it to be transparent as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, locally, I'm like, I, I'm getting a little a grief from our opponent for doing so well in the fundraising. And I said, listen, my campaign finance reform is why don't we just sit down and every month between now and November, we have one hour conversations up on a stage, two chairs, two microphones, and let's just have a conversation about the issues that affect the vast majority of our district. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll have a half an hour conversation on each subject. You can pick the subject, you can pick the moderator, you can pick the venue. Um, I haven't heard back from her. <laughs> or yeah. um, But, you know, that's the old days of standing up and um, running for election or re-election by focusing on the substance so i might we both might sound a little old school but i'm <laughs> sticking to my views of trying to be sincerely focused on the issues and and not just on the money raised and how do you the more money involved in politics the worse the decisions for the country yeah i agree yeah that it is and i think that's part of the reason why some people don't feel heard anymore i love the way you talked about it because i have a representative in you know whatever state it is and these are the interest interests i have you talked about water in colorado and then if you're if you're um if your representative is focused on supporting an issue that's critical like tobacco in kentucky it's kind of like oh what about me and us where you actually come from and you're you know are supposed to be representing it it certainly does make make all of us a little frustrated and unheard you know, one of the good things is, you know, there's not a 100% correlation between who has the most money wins. So there's that uh, mm-hmm. we have to remember. And of course, if if one becomes too off base from their voters, they will lose. And mm-hmm. it, not as quickly as they should, but they should be able to lose if, if that's the case. Yeah. You know, I was like, you know, as you were ta- as you were talking, I was thinking of a scene in the, in the movie Charlie Wilson's War. Yeah, where where Tom Hanks, you know, is in well, his district was uh, what El Paso area. And he said, yeah. I've got a I've got a district that doesn't want anything, so I get to say, I get to say yes a lot. You know, he was yeah. a wheeler and a dealer. And I'm thinking like, yeah, if that was only the reality, but it's not. It just isn't that simple, is it? Yeah, no, it's all part of the. You know, I I heard a term from a, a, a buddy of mine who's in Congress, and he uses term the angertainment industry, angertainment. Mm-hmm. And he never really used it much after that. And I'm like, you know, Dean, that's like the most brilliant, sadly, the most brilliant phrase I've heard, you know, in the past decade about to kind of sum up where we are. And there's just Uh so much 
much yelling and screaming uh, on social media as well as on the cable news networks. And again, on both sides or all sides, however you want to look at it. And this goes back to just people are exhausted from the political process. And they're, I think, thank goodness, more and more people are trying to figure out how to get more people from the middle. As I say, mm -hmm. we want people playing between the 240-yard lines. Mm -hmm. And then try to figure out how to take the job seriously. And pushing back against the yelling and the screaming is, to me, really, really important. And one of the reasons we're doing so well, you know, we were, last cycle, we were supposed to lose by 40,000 votes. If you look at the demographics and the partisan leaning and all that insider baseball stuff. And that's what we got written off. And we became kind of the surprise of the country and losing by 546 votes out of, you know, 327,000. So I try to convince a bunch of people like, no, 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 no. I know it looks uphill, but there's a lot of, you know, there's a couple of crazy people in the world. There are that many crazy people in the world. And um, people are sick and tired of the circus and ranchers and farmers. They're very pragmatic. And with due respect, we don't have a very pragmatic uh, representative now. And let's just kind of get back to the nuts and bolts of what does the district want? Yeah. And that's resonating. How do you think we got there? Because, you, know, you know, I've just, you know, my parents were politically active, like I said to you before, educationally, I, that's where I wanted to be. I, I love talking politics. I love you know, you know, diving into the issues. And it, nowadays it just seems to be, you know, used to say you can't talk religion and politics. I don't believe that. I think you always could talk religion and politics provided you were willing to exchange information. Um, but it's, it, we've devolved, like you said, I you know, I agree that uh, angertainment is, seems to be the, the play of the day. And how did we get there? I mean, do you have any sense of what happened? And well, when? I mean, I've, I've, Followed, you know, I'm not a political scientist, but I will I will opine. Uh, <laughs> there, there is a little bit of gerrymandering, but gerrymandering, that's one. It, you know, gerrymandering is necessary, but not sufficient for to get to where we are, right? Um, there's a lot of sorting going out. There are just more and more people that are moving to neighborhoods or living in neighborhoods that are more like themselves politically. You just don't see a lot of politically diverse communities this day and mm -hmm. i share one statistic which my team is is sick and tired of hearing about but so there's about 3150 counties in the country so about 3150 counties in the country colorado is 64 um in 1996 bill clinton uh president clinton won half of these rural counties uh defined by the department of agriculture there's about 2000 rural counties out of 3100 Mm -hmm. And Bill Clinton won half of the rural counties. So half the rural counties uh, were went to a Democrat. Half of the rural counties went towards a Republican. I haven't looked at the urban counties, but the urban counties were probably um, 55, 60% urban uh, Democrat and, and probably 45% Republican. I don't have the facts on that, but it's, it had to be somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. um, you go to 2012 and you look at President Obama and President Obama won 25% of these 2,000 rural counties. Mm. Um, go to 2020, 2020, and President Joe Biden, who's from Scranton, Pennsylvania, and is not a fan of the Ivy League class of people, right? You know, he's proud of, went to the University of Delaware and everything in Syracuse. Um, Joe Biden won fewer than 10% of the rural counties in the country. And... I think monopolies are bad in business, and I have a strong business background, and they're bad in politics, David. 
And I argue, and I've, I've said this publicly before, I'm not sure these 20 big cities, which pretty much are monopolized by the Democratic Party, I'm not sure these 20 big cities are getting the best version of the Democratic Party. I'm pretty sure of that. And I don't think a lot of rural America, which is, again, 90% led by Republicans, is getting the best version of the Republican Party. And I would argue for certainly in southern and western Colorado, it's the true. But bigger picture is um, the biggest indicator if someone's going to be voting Democrat or Republican are two things. Do you live in a city or do you not live in a city? And do you have a college education and do you not have a college degree? And if you're an urban and have a college degree, and only about, I think, a third, I think a third of adults over the age of 25 have a four-year college degree. Mm-hmm. Third, right? And, and you know, a lot of us don't know that many people without a college degree, right? That's just part of, because kind of the how it is. But I'm very aware of kind of the broader outside of my own bubble uh, of, of where I am. And that sorting has kind of taken place. And then demographically, we have this issue. And then from a political standpoint, the Achilles heel of our political system for the angertainment is this the primary system where only a quarter or less of the people show up to vote in a primary. And they are usually or almost always um, coming from the far, you know, they're coming from the 10 yard line of the Republican mm-hmm. Party and they're coming from the 10 yard line of the Democratic Party when the vast majority of the people are trying to figure out, you know, they're living their lives in the 240 yard lines, right? So mm-hmm. that disconnect. And so then you have 435 House of Representatives, of which 80% of them are locked and loaded by the time the primary happens. And this, I'm not sure if it's 50-50 Democrat or Republican. It's it's just, it's horrible on other sides. But the vast majority of the 435 House districts are done by the primary. And so you don't look at the world of how do I take care of my district? You look at the world of how do I take care uh, of the, the far left or the far right of my party in my district? Because that's the only people that matter. And until that incentive changes, the results are not going to change. And um, I'm just a big believer that the harder, the quicker we get rid of our current primary system, the better our country is going to be because we need, I'm a big believer in competition. <laughs> I yeah. don't like monopolies. Um, and I think it's important to make sure that, and you're starting to see Colorado a little bit in California somewhat, that you have alternative to the traditional primary system in Colorado. So our district in CD3, it leans about eight points Republican, but the registration is 22% Democrat, 32% Republican, and 45% independent, which I was for Mm -hmm. 20 years. And so I, you know, and I think this is a good thing. Some other people don't, but there are more non-Democrats that have access to the Democratic primary than the Democrats. And there are more non-Republicans registrations that have access to the Republican Party that are registered in the primaries. And so in theory, in theory, because we don't have that played out in 2020 with our current representative, but in theory, you should get more moderate candidates from both sides. And I'm a big fan of that. It sounds like you are as well. Mm -hmm. And we need to get back to where there's more competition 
um, at the primary level to try to heal our country a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I've, I've seen in some of your, um, you know, some of those the sound bites, you know, say sound bites, and I don't say that cynically, but you know, it is, yeah. it is what it is, right? Um, but you do talk about partisanship and 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 the 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 downside of that, and then and what it what it creates, and that's that's what you're basically talking about there, right? Yeah, you know, I you know I tell people. If I get into a team red, first of all, I don't like team red, team blue conversations. But if I get into team red versus team blue conversations, I'm losing by forty thousand votes. I'm I'm a believer. Eighty five percent of us are on team Colorado, and fifteen percent are on team chaos. And I'm on team Colorado, and I only want to speak to people in team Colorado. I make it very clear when I go talk around the state, and again, I'm talking around the my district all the time. I tell people, I don't care who you voted for, for president in 2016, in 2020. I don't care how you vote in your your city council race, your county commissioner race. I'll say with respect, I don't care who you vote for president in 2024. All I ask is that you think about who do you want representing you and your family and your community and your business when it comes to the House of Representatives working on bipartisan issues, which is the only way to get things done about water yeah. and rural health care and, and education funding and economic development. Um, and those that seems to, it works because we got 49% of the vote. And yeah. I wish there were more people focusing on, you know, team district versus team party. Yeah. I like that. Team Colorado. That's a great message. Yeah. You know, we're, my uh, mom calls it the, uh, it's the pro-normal party coalition I'm building. I'm building a party coalition. <laughs> pro-normal. We send you a hat yeah. when we yeah. get those up. That's um, really, that's awesome. That's, because that's true. That, I think that that's the thing that, you know, like you said, you know, team red, team blue, which team are you on? And, you know, all you see all the crazy stuff going on in Washington. That's like deep team dark red and team red, and team dark blue and team blue. It's like, oh my gosh, guys, just do something. You know, what yeah. you call the get it done party? Yeah, you know, where, where, where's the get it done coalition? <laughs> two, more, two more big topic things that you might want to hear, and if we want to skip them as soon as I mention them, we can do that. Um, you can go anywhere you want, man. Yeah, it's, no, your, it's your hour. <laughs> um, you know, again, so we have this Republican uh, rule, Democrat urban divide, and um, I'm not a big fan of it. Um, not just because I'm I'm running not as a Republican in a very rural district, but um, you know that divide is is really challenging. You know, the other thing that I think has happened is until about 30 years ago, a lot of the conversations were about, say, taxes and regulation and less about these social issues that have sprung up, right, and identity Mm -hmm. issues. And I think when people are trying to figure out what the right tax rate is for capital gains or income, and I want it to be X and you want it to be X plus 10, you know, at some point, it's going to be X4, 5, or 6, and we're going to move on. But uh, and the same thing with some regulatory environment. But now, so much of the conversation is about who we are as a people, who we are as a person, who we are as a country. Mm-hmm. And who wants to, you know, I don't like the words compromise. My view is we should talk about common ground. Because in my mind, if we start talking about compromising, you're asking people to compromise their values and who wants to compromise the values i just think there's a lot more common ground between my values and other people's values who on the face of it might not see eye to eye and we have a lot more in common than a lot of people realize 
don't let social media and cable news ruin that for us. As someone who's talked to thousands and thousands of people over a year and a half driving 40,000 miles, I will guarantee you um, from you know the ritzy towns of Telluride uh, to some of our most remote communities in CD3, 80% of the people have the same view on 80% of the stuff. The problem is social media and television has f- figured out after a lot of money invested because there's even more money to be made don't focus don't you focus on that 80 percent that you agree on we don't make money off of that focus on the 20 percent that you don't agree on and we're going to hammer you on that and so now um when we get to negotiate and we're negotiating about who we are as a person well who wants to who wants to give an inch on that uh i'll i'll, I'll be happy to negotiate about taxes but i don't want to give up who I am as a person and who my community is. And that's another one that I put in the bucket of why we are starting to see uh, more angst um, Mm -hmm. and more frustration and more angertainment about that because people view the stakes are just so much higher. Um, There's some horrible view of like um, the interview Republicans and if the Democrats win, what do you think is going to happen? And if you interview the Democrats and Republicans and what's going to happen, like, more, a majority of people are like um, apoplectic about what could possibly happen uh, if the other side won. And I'm just like, oh my goodness, we need to figure out non-naively to get beyond that. And I'm trying to do my little part. Yeah. It's interesting because yeah, uh, 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 the term that I hear with that is you know, future casting, <laughs> right? We're in a future cast. This is what's going to happen if. This is going to happen when. Well, you yeah. don't know you don't know that, but if you know if somebody tells you the story enough that it sounds like, well, I've heard this story enough. I heard this future cast enough that I'm believing it's true. Well, we've all learned that, you know, even the weatherman with the greatest amount of detail, you know, misses the misses the forecast. You know, what the truth is is let's let's live it out and see what happens, right? Let's have a conversation. Let's walk through it. Let's talk. Yeah, and not not live in the fear of the uncertainty. You know. Uh, you know, in, in the old days, shall we say, there were three, you know, places for news or four or five, right? You had ABC, NBC, and CBS, and I'm 56, so I'm not that old, but I'm not that young. Um, and then you had a local radio station and stuff. And um, and the good side about that is that everyone was pretty much reporting the same type of facts. The bad thing was there might definitely miss some difference of opinion, diversity, and everything else like that. Now, um, there's 4,000 million places to get your news uh and the confirmation bias as the behavioral economists will tell you is we all rush towards comforting news and there's certainly a way to find out out there whatever you believe you can find Mm -hmm. someone with some type of authority because they have a podcast because they have a youtube channel because they have a television show or television station that you can find someone to back up your your beliefs and biases and unfortunately, you know, simplistically, there's two different views, but there's a lot more than that. But I don't know what the answer is about how to make sure that can we at least be working off the same basic facts before we try to figure out what goes on. And, you know, I know that there was that quip that was made a couple of years ago about alternative facts. But um, unfortunately, that, um, you know, that that female um, consultant was speaking i don't want to say the truth but she was speaking a lot of people's truth about how do you kind of make yourself feel better and listen we'd all love well we've all end up hopefully not too many times you go to the doctor 
and you get the diagnosis. Uh, and then we all run around until someone tells us, oh, no, 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 you don't need to do a single thing. Do not give up eating any food, do not exercise anymore. You can lose weight just by watching the right television channel. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, that doesn't work in health. It doesn't work in our physical health, and it's certainly not working in our mental health. Right. Yeah, it doesn't work in the real world. But yeah, that's true. Yeah, we do. We do seek out. We we seek out the answers that we that we want, not necessarily the truth. And there there is a difference there. Obviously, yeah. I was thinking of uh, as you were talking. There was a, a book I read a while ago, and they talked about technical problems and adaptive problems or adaptive issues. And technical, you know, are the things that you know somebody with authority can say. Here's the problem. Let's let's just do something. Let's create a law or a rule or a policy, and it'll solve our problems. But if it's truly a deep endemic uh, cultural or social issue, it requires um, what they call the adaptive uh, response. And that requires the the participation of the involvement of the people who are experiencing it, the people who are, uh, that need to deal with it. And it reflects, and, and as a result, uh, you know, you, you talked about, you know, resistance to change, but the reality is, is that to fix those, there's going to, it requires a shift. And a lot of times people self-destruct the fixing, you know, the responding adaptively because they see something coming in. So, oh, I may have to adapt what I'm doing today to fit this new norm, but it actually solves the critical issue that people want to deal with. And I look at, you know, a lot of our social political issues. You talk about healthcare, you talk about water, you talk about, you know, um, um, sustainability, whatever. It it does require us to look at what behaviors are productive and what behaviors are not, though, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, there's there's two. I like what your adaptive versus technical. There's two things that pop up in my mind, especially when it comes to technical about authority. I think like the Pew Research that does all the surveys and interviews, right? In the early mid six, early sixties, so before Vietnam. Um, there, trust, you know, do you believe that your government, the federal government's mostly going to do the right thing most of the time? And it was like in 80%, it was like 80% of Americans believed that the federal government, the majority of the time was going to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. trust. It's now 17%. Um, and S 17? 17. We've gone from 80 or 75 to 17%. And you look at, don't even get me involved in U.S. Congress. But you can get you could throw the media in there as well. Sadly, um, the Supreme Court has has taken, and I don't want to get too partisan about that, but that's gone there. You're basically yeah. left with the military uh in the junior league, I would imagine, which are like the only two things that are that are left in high. So as soon as we get to the technical aspects about authority and who really one can look up to to believe in, the believability index has just crashed as a country. Uh, and it's a society, I should say, and the lack of trust has just skyrocketed. Now, you know, we have the third biggest town, we have 200,000 person towns. The third biggest town is 20,000 people. And it doesn't take very long out of the, all these towns in our district to get to four and 5,000 person towns. Uh, and I'm in, I'm in Rocky Ford, Colorado right now, uh, which is a beautiful part of Southeast Colorado. It's, um, I don't know, about an hour north of, of the New Mexico border. But the social trust, I still see it in the local communities, regardless of who people are, and Republicans and Democrats, everything else like that. At the local level, there's still there still feels like there's a lot of social trust, bake sales and churches and and house, houses of worship and 
I think about the the bakeries that everyone's going to and the diners and stuff. But at a higher level, that trust is is just not there. And then to the adaptive versus technical, I talk about there's some of our issues that DC face are are political, and some of them are truly um, heart wrenching. Like what do you do? Like uh, trying to solve child poverty or urban education, whatever. You know, there's so many ideas. We put so much money into it. It really hasn't moved the needle. And yes, there's politics involved, but you have a lot of smart people thinking about it. And whether you put people in a room by themselves with no media or not, there's a lot of moving parts to it. There's some other situations where it's more political, like if 20 people or 50 people could sit down and not have to own their vote in public, we could probably get a lot of stuff done passed in Congress. And I'm not arguing, uh, I'm a big believer in transparency, I'm a big believer in free speech. So I'm not arguing that we need to do the smoky room things. But in the midst of um, the importance to be transparent and trying to tackle those political problems, which a lot of people agree privately, but don't agree publicly, I have a lot of foibles, but one of the I'm a big believer, and one of the reasons we've done so well is being really sincere and being really authentic. But one thing I've learned is like speaking truth to your constituents is not easy for a lot, a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And the number one, as Churchill said, the number one uh, quality trait above all others is courage. And from everything else, courage follows. And, um, you know, I, I have to take my head off to Liz Cheney, whose book just came out or is coming out tomorrow about we have a lot of profiles in cowardice and not enough profiles in courage. And I would say that's true on both sides of the aisle, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, I have this, you know, if I ever, you know, my, my joke is like I'm burdened with facts. And so as an example, my thing, I'm a really big believer in domestic energy. And I've been a big believer in domestic energy for a really long time. And domestic energy is really important to our district. And on the whole, the Democratic Party is not nearly as enthusiastic to the detriment to the climate, to the detriment to labor laws, and to the detriment to the economy. Um, that I say, like, you know, there might be some Republicans who don't understand the science. Uh, we have a climate crisis, David. We have a climate crisis. But mm-hmm. I'm less I'm less concerned about those Republicans who don't understand the science or want to believe the science of the climate crisis. I'm a lot bigger concerned about the Democrats who don't understand the math of how long it's going to take to make this energy addition and transition. And I'm realizing as I do a lot of speaking for a lot of people on this domestic energy thing, which I'm a big fan of, people say half the people tell me I'm brave and the other half tell me I'm dumb. And so, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm burdened with facts. I only know one, whether I'm in the most liberal progressive communities in our district or some of the most conservative I'm sharing my point of view, and it's the same point of view, regardless of where I am. And I think if more people running for office or winter office were doing that, their authenticity would allow them some leeway that we're getting votes from people that might not agree in every little view I have or position, but they look up and see someone who has the courage to stand up and believe what they say, and that they connect with the voters in the district. And this speaking truth to constituency, it, to me, is like the number one question that there should be on a job application for anyone who's thinking about running for office. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I agree with you so much on that part. You know, as as you were talking, I was thinking of um, Brene Brown and some of her writing, and but she has one that just stuck with me was uh, 
her four P's, pretending, pre, uh, pretending, pleasing, proving, and perfecting. Pretending, pleasing, proving, perfecting. What you do is you kind of create this construct for yourself where you fit in so that, you know, uh, people will like you and accept you. And then you find yourself getting liked and accepted into this crowd and it's not your people and you're not effective and you're not happy. You're not connected. And, you know, so her whole thing is basically to that, you know, you have to have the courage to be authentic because when you're authentic and you're true to who you are and what you stand for and what you believe, people have a greater tendency to trust you. Yeah. And yeah, I think so. At the end of the day, trust is what it's all about. Again, I'm not running around waving a blue flag. And I, even if I was in a blue district, which I'm certainly not, I wouldn't be doing that as well. It's about earning trust from people. And I've known from day one at the Democratic primary part and more in the general that people are very skeptical in a rural district from someone coming from a pretty darn well-known resort community, right? And the question mm -hmm. is, and I try to get into the, my, you know, my father, my grandfather opened up a little grocery store in a mining town in Virginia, Minnesota on the Iron Range. And my great-grandfather on my mom's side came over from Europe and open up a cattle trading business and they're on the fourth generation uh cattle store feed um grain elevator and feed store in esco minnesota mm -hmm. and so i do have some rural roots in me but the perception which is very fair for the past 20 years i've been living um in, in a resort community uh and aspen of all things and so i'm trying to convince people that I don't have mountain town horns and and <laughs> horns and and democratic horns. I mean, that's really um, what I'm trying to focus on. And again, I, I'm focused on people want the circuses stop. I'm on Team Colorado, not anything else. I want to wave the Colorado flag, not a blue flag. And yeah. I'm just and I think people are ready for our message, um, and we have a unique opportunity because one of the things I realized when I was running. A couple of years ago was that um there's some on the left and some on the right um that there's a handful of nationally known representatives uh and Lord, the, the current representative is the only one that not only has i thought has a really good chance and a probability of losing we came really close and so i just wish there were more opportunities for those loudest voices in the room because not only do i think 80 percent of the people in the country want to play between the 240 yard lines there are a lot of members in congress democrats and republicans that are really trying to focus on the job the problem is they're not on twitter and television the entire time or really at all and they're mm -hmm. grinding away in these subcommittee meetings as i'm going to do in these committee meetings as i'm going to do to really look after the majority of the people in their district and connect with them and that's to me how you are successful in this job of representing 700,000 people with a 700,000 different stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's interesting. Where, where does the work get done? The work doesn't get done on social media, and um, the news channels, or it gets done in the in the gritty back rooms, right? The subcommittees and the committees and that kind of stuff. I mean, that's where it really comes from. So yeah, it's hard. Um, interesting. Um, so one other quick question I noticed is that somebody just tagged me and says, I got four minutes. So um, uh, really quick, the blame game. How do you get out of that? Because you've done a really nice job of saying, look, it, it's, I'm not blaming anybody. We, you know, the, the, it, it stinks on both sides. There's a lot of things going on. How do you, how do you stay out of it? Because <laughs> so I, I, I got to believe that some, every once in a while, somebody tugs at your shirt and tries to get you into that mud pile. Um, 
you know, I I want us in D.C. to be fighting over who gets credit for all the great stuff that is happening in D.C. instead of fighting over who we should blame for all the stuff that doesn't get done. Um, and, you know, I don't say that very often. I should probably say it more. But that is that's the arguments that I want to have, which is, no, 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 no. It was my idea that everyone that 75 percent of the country likes versus I'm trying to stuff something down that only 5% of the country likes, but it's really good for me or or my fund or whatever. And so, again, I think the primaries are where we run into issues where I'm a big believer, like, you tell me what the incentives are, I can tell you what the results are without looking at them. And mm -hmm. the incentives are, are to play between the 5 and the 15-yard line as opposed between the 240-yard lines we're going to be having more yelling and screaming that our country needs and our country deserves. And every time we're yelling and screaming and having speaker fights, China and Russia are just laughing their butts off at us. Uh, and we need to figure out a way to respect and honor and cherish this diversity of, of people and cultures and thoughts, political thoughts, and come out so it's a stronger place to honor everything that's on that Statue of Liberty. But right now, we've just turned into a huge bicker fest. Uh, and I'm trying to get there and, and get out of the bickering uh, and more on some problem solving. Uh, and I'm a big, you know, there's a there's a bipartisan caucus in the House called the Problem Solvers Caucus. And there's 30 Democrats and 30 Republicans. And I, I'm going to barge my way in there and make them with <laughs> me. Uh, you know, I, I think we have a nice relationship with them, whatever. But it's part of the get stuff done conversation that not enough people are willing to do when they get to D.C. But thank you very much for your time, David. You know, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for making time for me. Um, but tell my audience that, you know, because I did get a, a, an email reminding, and I know you're not going to do this plug, so I will do it for you. Um, we're, we are on a fundraising campaign, um, adamforcolorado.com, and you're doing a big push. And, and, uh, and I do appreciate you taking time to have an honest conversation with us. And I love your I love your message and the best of luck as you do going forward. Thank you so much for that. Thank and you. To my, yeah. Go ahead. No, thank to, you for allowing conversations of substance. Yeah, this is great. I love these kind of conversations. I could do them all the time. Um, and to the audience, just a, just a reminder. I think we heard this today. Is you know you got to open your ar arms. You got to open your heart. Open your mind. Open your ears. Open your eyes. Because once you start listening. You have an opportunity to see change. Things will change. So let's move forward with that. Everybody have a great weekend. Adam, thank you so much. Thank you, David. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Stop Telling and Start Listening. We hope you've picked up on some useful ideas to help you enhance your conversational skills. Until we listen again, have a beautiful week.